Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for inviting me today, and uh, it's good to be here. Uh, I've lived in Newburgh for about 15 years now, and I have felt a lot of connections with this church uh, just through friends and colleagues at George Fox. Uh, I feel like I belong here in some ways, uh, even though I'm not a regular uh, attender. And um, it's, uh, it's good to see so many familiar faces here. So Melanie got it mostly right uh, in her introduction, um, although I still haven't quite figured out the evangelical haircut <laughs> clip. Uh, uh, she actually wrote this in one of her books, by the way. Uh, so it's not only something she says, but it's in inscribed. Uh, and you have to be careful when you're friends with a creative nonfiction writer because they're likely to put you in their book. And, uh, she did. Um, what I remember from that interview process with two, two things stand out. Uh, the first one is I was filling in for a class that Melanie was teaching. It was a writing class. Uh, it was like a noon or one o'clock class, I think. And before the class, we went to chapel. And during the chapel service, um, that happened to be the day they were announcing the faculty member of the year for the undergraduate college and Melanie won that award and so I was already super nervous about you know teaching somebody else's class and then I found out I'm teaching the class of the best faculty member at George Fox University and I was petrified uh, the second thing I remember is that we went across campus to visit Scott Headley uh, who was on the interview committee and we were walking through the canyon. Uh, well, I was walking, Melanie was sprinting through the canyon. And I didn't know at that point that she was a marathoner, but I was so out of breath by the time we got to Scott's office, I had to take a, <laughs> take a moment. Um, but uh, as she said, it worked out, so I'm happy. Um, George Fox has been a good place for me and the people here uh, of this church have been good friends. And, uh, wonderful uh, mentors and all sorts of other things to me. Uh, I want us to begin this morning uh, by listening and watching together a music video uh, of a song by Carrie Newcomer. This is a song that has inspired me over the past few months as I've thought about some of the ideas I'm going to share with you today. So please uh, enjoy this, uh, this music video. Yeah. 
Hope you enjoyed that video. It's one of my favorites. I love the dancing, and uh, my my life goal after watching it was to dance like the guy in the stocking cap and the and the suspenders. Uh, I'm working on it, but I don't know. It may be a while before I can pull that off. Uh, but I think it's it's, it's a very joyful. Uh, uh, it always uplifts me when I watch that, and also. It really does express in a lot of ways what I want to share with you this morning. Uh, would you listen to this uh, biblical text from Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 22? Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that he, if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus for three days. He was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, the Lord called to him in a vision. 
Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judah on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road uh, as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell, fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on the name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious God, thank you for this time to meditate on stories. Thank you for being the author, the ultimate author of our stories but letting us play a part in how our stories unfold. Thank you for each story and each person here this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. When Krista Tippett interviews any guest on her podcast, she always begins with the same question. She asked her guest to describe their spiritual or religious atmosphere that they grew up in, in which they were raised. Over the years, I've found this to be an important factor in my own life. But I've also found it fascinating how something so important in our lives, the way we were raised, is something that we have absolutely no control over. I don't know about you, but I didn't get to choose the family that I was born into. I didn't get to choose the church that my parents attended and brought me to. Believe me, if I had, I would have made a different choice, which is a little foreshadowing to me. What I'm going to share with you. But isn't that weird to think about? You know, we, we have no agency in that. And yet it affects so much our, who we are and, and how our lives develop. 
And unfortunately, we know the stories of some who grew up in really difficult families, uh, families that damaged them, families that taught them worldviews that were very unhealthy and hateful. And uh, these are, are very sad things that we see really every day in life. But some of my favorite stories are about people who grew up in some of those difficult circumstances uh, and yet were able to change, were able to break free and write new and better stories. And so I want to use uh, three examples today. Uh, the first is the Apostle Paul. Uh, the second is a woman named Megan Phelps Roper. And the third is myself. So we start with this story, very familiar story of Paul, right, who is the persecutor of the church, who is someone who saw his mission in life to destroy the Christian movement, and moving from that to becoming its most eloquent spokesman and its greatest theologian. I like to imagine Saul's family as super strict and that he was raised in this environment where uh, he was almost forced uh, to study, uh, you know, study the Bible, to study the text, to learn to be a great Pharisee. And I'm sure that Saul was totally convinced that he was doing the right thing while he was growing up uh, in that family. In fact, he tells us in one of his letters that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I like to think of him as the Michael Jordan of the Pharisees, personally. And yet, with God's help, Saul does a 180. It seems to me at the heart of the gospel is the affirmation that people can change. Jesus and John the Baptist, you remember, called people to repentance at the beginning of their ministries, to turn from their old habits and practices based on materialism and selfishness and to write a new and better story based on truth, justice, love, and community. But just in case we think that such conversion stories are only in the Bible, we can look at contemporary stories as well. Ones like the story of Megan Phelps Roper, Megan was raised in the Westboro Baptist Church. And as you probably know, members of this church have become widely known for their public demonstrations at a variety of events, including military funerals, where they share their extreme ideology of hatred and intolerance. When Megan was five years old, she began to join her family on the picket lines Megan's parents made signs for her to carry. One of them said, gays are worthy of death. Megan and her 10 siblings learned from their parents and, their ch and church leaders that life was an epic battle between good and evil and that their sole purpose in life was to expose those who were evil. Throughout her teens, Megan never doubted uh, what she was being taught. In fact, she began to use social media to spread the Westboro Baptist ideology on Twitter and other platforms. 
In her 2017 TED Talk, which I understand is still one of the most watched TED Talks in history, Megan explained how it was the conversation she was having on Twitter that began to change her views. Notice this, those of you who criticize Twitter or X, uh, it was central to this person's conversion. <laughs> of course, many people responded to Megan's post with disgust and with their own hatred and rejection toward her. But it was not those posts that moved her, rather it was the post of a few people who showed genuine curiosity about her beliefs and expressed care for her as a person. Those people seemed to really want to know what she believed and why she believed it. And over time, those few began to cause Megan to question her faith. For example, there was a Jewish blogger who responded to Megan's tweets with curiosity and empathy even though expressing hatred toward Jews was part of the Westboro playbook. After leaving the movement and her family, Megan spent time in a Jewish commune whose members invited her to become a part of their family. She ended up marrying the Jewish blogger, I love this, and she now puts her efforts into countering the hateful messages that she once held and helped spread. Megan talks about what a relief it was to let go of the harsh judgments that, she, that ran through her mind about nearly every person she saw. Megan is writing a new story, rejecting an ideology of hate and exclusion for one of love and inclusion. In my own life, I feel I've had the opportunity to write a new story. So I want to share a few personal reflections. But I want to introduce it with a quote from Megan Phelps Roper from her TED Talk. Referring to her upbringing, Megan notes that in my home, life was framed as an epic spiritual battle between good and evil. The good was our church and its members. The evil was everyone else. The world population was divided between the clean and the unclean. In such a world, the only way to do good was to tell the unclean that they were destined for damnation. I was raised in a church tradition that was sectarian and fundamentalist. Now, I'm, I need to qualify this. It was nowhere nearly as extreme as the Westboro Baptist Church. But I do have to say, when I read Megan's comment about life being divided into the us and them, that I knew exactly what she was talking about. I resonated with those words. I was taught growing up that among all the different denominations and religions in the world, Miracle of Miracles, our church, was the one who had learned how to interpret the Bible and how to worship God. In my youth classes, we spent time studying other denominations and religions, not to understand them, but so that we would be better prepared to convert them to our way of thinking, and also to explode, expose their errors of their practices and beliefs. So we studied the Methodist and the Baptist and the Catholics, 
If we would have known about the Quakers, we would have studied them, I'm sure. Identifying how they misinterpreted the Bible and uh, the strong implication being that those folks were on the path to damnation. And I remember as a teen being very troubled by this. Uh, believe it or not, I was a very serious youth. And uh, in high school, I took this very seriously. Uh, I suspect in the same way that Paul or Saul took his teaching and Megan Phelps Roper took, her, took hers. And it occurred to me one day, you know, all these people I'm going to school with, where do they go to church? Oh yeah, they're Methodist and Baptist and Episcopalians, which meant they were on the road to hell and which meant I was the one responsible for saving them. Now, in addition to being serious, I was extremely shy in high school. And so I had a lot of trouble doing this and that led to guilt and uh, more, uh, more problems for me spiritually. But I will tell you one story that kind of illustrates what this meant in my upbringing. Uh, one of my high school friends who was a member of my denomination was dating a girl who was Southern Baptist. And one night, my friend Clark and I sat down with Rosemary and explained to her why her church's view of baptism was wrong. Well, as you can imagine, it didn't go all that well. Uh, the evening ended with Rosemary in tears and everyone feeling terrible and nobody changing their opinions about baptism. Years later, after I'd had, I think I would call it my first conversion experience, I wrote a letter to Rosemary. We were still friends and I apologized to her for that night. I apologized for being a religious bully. And um, we have, we've stayed in touch over the years. Uh, recently, Rosemary shared an image of a t-shirt with me on social media. And the shirt said, I'm sorry for the things I said when I was a fundamentalist Christian. Uh, another part of this story is that uh, a few years ago, I decided to go to my uh, 50th high school reunion back in Wichita, Kansas. And for me, going to that reunion was partially a penance. Um, because what I realized is as I interacted with those classmates, I thought about the way I viewed them when I was in high school. And uh, I just wish I'd had the t-shirt to wear, you know, that would have been perfect, but I didn't have it at that point. But I, and I didn't really talk to anyone about that, but something inside of me uh, needed to do that. And of course, what I found is many of those people that I had viewed as heretics uh, when I was in high school were, you know, people who were contributing to their church communities. They were, they were fine Christian people. Um, and, and I just was sorry uh, for the way that I had viewed them when I was so much younger. Well, I could tell stories all day, but I think you get the point. Since leaving the church of my youth, I've been engaged in an ongoing process of what I would call deprogramming and unlearning some of the toxic elements of the belief system and the worldview that I was taught. 
When I finally decided to leave the church I was raised in, there were certain qualities I was looking for in a new church. And I thought I might share these with you because I know that you've been in a discussion about what does it mean to be the church in these times. And uh, perhaps hearing what uh, uh, some middle-aged guy who's, who's leaving a, a tradition was looking for could be helpful uh, or not. But I've still got a few minutes left, so I'm going to share them. First, after growing up in a church, church system that was exclusive, uh, I wanted to be part of a spiritual community that was inclusive, open, and welcoming. I was attracted to the denomination that I eventually ended up in precisely because it displayed those traits. The pastor opened every service with a statement like this, no matter who you are or where you are in life's journey, you are welcome here. And also, I was looking for a church that was open in its interpretation of scripture. After growing up in a biblicist tradition where, for example, instrumental music was not used in worship because of a particular hermeneutic, by that same hermeneutic, the women in my church tradition were prohibited from reading scripture in church and would never have thought of pursuing a seminary or becoming a pastor. I was looking for a different approach. I hoped to find a community where it was okay to ask questions about the Bible and where uncertainty and doubt were considered as necessary parts of faith rather than as signs of unbelief. I'll never forget the day when the pastor of my new church was talking about the idea of being an open and affirming church. And she said, you know, we've decided as a, a church and as a wider body uh, that this is going to be our stand. We are, we are going to be open and affirming. And then she said, but we could be wrong. And she said, the only thing we can do is continue faithfully in the path that we've determined. And the thing that stunned me about that sentence was the phrase, we could be wrong. Because I'm telling you, in the years I spent in my church, I never heard anyone say that. So an important part of a church for me was that stance of uncertainty and we could be wrong, but we are pursuing faithfully the best way we know how. The church I found was open and affirming to all sexual orientations, and this had become important to me as well. I wanted to be in a church that reflected my values of love and inclusion. Being a part of my church has strengthened my commitment to be an ally for my LGBTQ plus siblings. It has helped me be a better ally for the gay students that I teach. And the experience of worshiping with and serving with gay and les lesbian Christians has enriched my spiritual life and changed my view of the world. I've met some lovely people that I never would have met had I continued meeting with my non-affirming church. I've also come to admire the stories of these Christians who have maintained their faith and religious practices 
in the face of discrimination and exclusion. And I also, I also suspect that churches who are open and affirming provide an important testimony in our world uh, against the message of many of our evangelical churches. Another thing I was looking for was a church that prioritized social justice and that seeks shalom for all people for the earth. The church of my youth was not much concerned with such matters. I don't remember ever hearing a sermon on racism, even though I grew up in one of the most segregated cities in America. Most of what I learned about social justice, frankly, came from Bob Dylan and the uh, singer-songwriters of the 60s and 70s, uh, because I didn't hear about it at church. And so I'm glad to go to a church where when I give my money, I know that the organizations that my church is supporting are ones that support my own priorities, uh, not the least of which is environmental justice. I was also looking for a church that would allow me to use my gifts and where I would receive pastoral care. I wanted to be a part of a church where I would be invited to participate, but at my own pace. And by that I mean it had been my experience in past church communities that I was expected to serve. And there was some guilt that came with choosing not to teach a class or to serve on a committee. By contrast, I hoped my new church would recognize that I might need a little time for healing from my, some of my former church experiences. And I was relieved to find that my new church used language like Every member should share their time, their talent, and their treasure. And that those were kind of equal things, right? That uh, it, it allowed for people to kind of play to their strengths, play to their gifts. And this has made church service in a new way joyful for me, which it had not been in the past. One example of that is... Uh, I get to play my guitar in church uh, these days. And um, of course, I would not have been able to do that in my, in my former church. And I have to t confess, maybe this is a, shows something about me, that when I, whenever I play my guitar in church now, I feel a little bit rebellious. Is, um, is that okay? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of a good feeling uh, <laughs> uh, in a way. Finally, uh, when I was looking for a church, I was looking for pastoral care, um, and I found it. Uh, during the past, last decade or so, I've gone through a few surgeries. Uh, I've lost my dad, uh, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law. And um, for me, it's important when those bad events happen to have a church community to lean on. And uh, in all of these events, uh, after I've talked to my family about them, my first call is to my pastor, Jenny. And her prayers with me and for me uh, have made so much difference. And I'm so thankful for those, as well as the prayers of the church community. Uh, before I finish, I want to say one more word about leaving something. 
I hope that you won't get the idea from hearing me tell my story uh, that leaving my church tradition was easy for me. Uh, it wasn't. In spite of all the problems that I've cited, um, I've had to learn that just like my family of origin, the church I grew up in will always be a part of who I am. And my goal has been to go from bitterness to thankfulness of the things that were good about my religious heritage. But even though I'm a fairly advanced age, I'm still working on that. Uh, it's, it's a lifelong thing. As I continue to deal with my past, I am holding on to the words of the liturgy when I became a member of my new church. We thank God for all the communities that have been our spiritual homes. I love that so much. So thank you for listening to my thoughts on writing a new story. What about you? How are you writing a new story? Or what new stories perhaps have you written in the past? I would love to hear those. To quote Carrie Newcomer, there are stories shaped like stones, the ones our hearts have always known, the ones we finally call our own, down where the spirit meets the bone. May we give thanks for the new stories we've written in the past, and may God grant us the courage to write new and better stories in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. Amen. <laughs>